0: Welcome, everybody, to THPS Podcast, episode number 46. Hey, everybody, thanks for joining. My name is The Dode Man, and uh, glad to have everybody with us here uh, for an earlier episode than we normally do. But uh, nonetheless, we're excited to uh, welcome everybody to the podcast today. Thank you for your support. Thank you for being a part of this. We really appreciate it. We couldn't do it without you. Uh, So uh, notable by his absence, Freddie could not make the episode uh, this morning. Uh, Schedules just would not allow for it. We wanted to be sure uh, to... To have our guest be a part of this today, so uh, at any rate, we just uh, it just didn't work, but that's okay. Freddie is uh, with us in spirit. He helped with the questions, and so uh, he's looking forward to uh, to watching the replays when uh, time allows for him. So, as per usual, we would normally have a uh, we would have some housekeeping items uh, that we would go into right now, but we're going to do that after the interview here, and uh, you will all understand uh, why here shortly. So. Without further ado, today we are honored to welcome our guest, Mick West. Mick co founded the video game development company Neversoft Entertainment in July of 1994 with Joel Jewett and Chris Ward. Working at Neversoft for nine years as technical director, he was heavily involved in programming the first five games of the Tony Hawk series. His favorite contributions were doing the initial player control for uh, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. He was responsible for general technological developments at Neversoft during those first nine years, which was quite a bit of stuff. He also worked on Apocalypse and Spider-Man for Neversoft. As we have heard from the other uh, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater podcast guests, Mick is largely responsible for creating the famous gameplay feel in Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. Since retiring as a video game programmer, Mick has created the websites Contrail Science and Metabunk, and he investigates and debunks pseudoscientific claims and conspiracy theories such as chemtrails and UFOs. His first book is Escaping the Rabbit Hole, How to Debunk Conspiracy Theories Using Facts, Logic, and Respect. He further hosts a podcast, Tales from the Rabbit Hole, where he interviews conspiracy culture guests. Everyone, please join me in giving a big, warm welcome to Mick West. No, thank you for that. <laughs> you're welcome, Mick. Thank you uh, so much for taking the time to join us today. We really appreciate it. No, you're welcome.
1: I was like talking about uh, Tony Hawk.
0: Awesome. <laughs> well, we love uh, we love playing the uh, games that you helped to create. So this is going to be a lot of fun to be able to be a, a, here, pick your rain on it a little bit, and hear what you have to say. So uh, no, we no. really appreciate it. All right. Well, let's jump right in. I know we have you for a limited amount of time and we appreciate every minute that you gave us. So let's not waste any time and we'll get into some of the questions that we have for you. Um, So we're going to start out with some uh, early questions from Neversoft, uh, the early days of Neversoft. So when did you meet Joel Jewett and Chris Ward?
1: Oh, actually, I don't know the exact date. I guess it was the mid 90s. uh, So I guess 95 ish. Wow. Uh, but I met them uh, working at a company called Malibu Interactive, which was a division of Malibu Comics. It used to be called Acme Interactive. It was a company who did um, you know, the CinemaWare games, real long time ago, old school, old school video games. And I, I got hired to work there from England. Uh, I was working at Ocean in England, and I got a, a job offer over here in California. And you know they paid me uh two and a half times as much money and so it was kind of a no-brainer for me at the time young guy and uh, so i came over here and one of the first pe- persons i met was was chris Ward. and he actually came from the same area of england as me he lived just like i think 10 miles away from me just down the valley oh, i never met him before <laughs> yeah it was a pure coincidence Wow. And I, I didn't meet joel for uh maybe six months after that and The first time I met Joel was he was working as an accountant at uh, at Malibu. He was in the comics division and uh, he came over to to us after we got acquired by Malibu to give us a talk about I think 401ks or something like that and that was the first time I saw him. I just thought he was a a nerdy little uh, uh, accountant. (laughs) uh, Little little did I know.
0: Yeah. A nerdy little accountant. That's, that's funny. Wow. So pretty early you got together with them and yeah, that's great. So what led you guys to start Neversoft together? What, what was kind of the process that got you to that point to start the studio?
1: Well, uh, Malibu was kind of thrashing around at that time. I think they merged with this comics department, uh, and it didn't really work. The cultures weren't really working very well. Like there was the comic division and the game division together. And so all the game developers just wanted to make games. A lot of people were leaving to start their own company. And several of my friends who worked at Malibu, who I knew from England, had already left to start their own company. And one of them was um, uh, Clockwork Orange. Uh, not Clockwork Orange. Uh, Clockwork Tortoise. Clockwork Tortoise. And there's another one called uh, Paradox. And Left Field Productions. So and all three of those were essentially spin-offs from, from Malibu. And since everybody else was doing it and we, we saw they were having a success, Joel was the guy who decided, ah, the the way to make money is not to just stay around in this, this you know regular accountancy job. It's to start my own game developer company and like, you know, so he looks around, who's left? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and out of who's left, who's who's the best? and uh he, he he picked me and you know, then i picked chris because we needed an artist and that's that's how it happened
0: wow so malibu was basically gutted then i mean yeah for lack of other term
1: <laughs> yeah i think uh fairly shortly after that uh <clears throat> the, the games division really didn't exist anymore and i'm not sure what happened to the comics division i think it eventually kind of merged with some other thing but yeah the it didn't really work out the games division, and I, I think there are now, even now, some uh, existing uh, spin-off companies that uh, that are ex-Malibu people. So wow. you know, they had they had an impact, but it just kind of phew, sure. dissipated through the games sphere. Hmm,
0: interesting so uh so some of the first games that you published by NeverSoft were skeleton warriors and apocalypse there were also a few games you all worked on that really never got published ghost rider big guns yeah. slash exodus and then you guys did a conversion of the pc game mdk did the technology and lessons learned from those titles help uh, form the foundation for the first tony hawks pro skater
1: uh yeah definitely i mean the What we we had to do was develop our own technology because everything was basically done entirely from scratch back then when you're developing a PlayStation game, a PSX game, PlayStation 1. Uh, And you you, you have to come up with an engine all by yourself. And once you've got an engine as a company, you can use that for the next game. You can just take the previous game and start making a new game. So the very first game we did uh, was just, just raw from nothing uh, but each iteration of something after that you can kind of use what you've learned before uh, and carry that on to the next game uh, of course like uh, tony hawk is a kind of a direct descendant from apocalypse uh, which itself was a descendant from uh, big guns/exodus slash uh, which was our our main kind of 3D game and you know elements of the code in those games came back from the the original uh, skeleton warriors games cuz you just use little bits of code and it goes and ends up in in later games
0: sure so then um i'll get my stuff straight here uh so then prior to working on tony hawk's pro skater did you know much about skateboarding did you know who tony hawk was did you have any uh (laughs) uh, interest in that culture at all
1: i uh not really i mean when i was a kid i i messed around. Around with a little skateboard, but you know, back then it was there's the silly kind of torpedo board, <laughs> banana board, yeah, ship. yeah, and uh, <laughs> ridiculous things, and uh, I never really got into it. So <clears throat> yeah, I was obviously aware of skateboarding, and it, it was something that was just kind of just starting to get into the mainstream there, like with with the X Games, right. um, and so I, I was aware of it from that, but it was it wasn't really something that I I really followed now. <laughs>
0: oh, that's interesting. And it ends up being like this huge thing for you and, you know, ends up really contributing and kind of almost, you know, uh, changes the course of everything. I mean, certainly yeah. in video games, that genre was non-existent for the most part. You know, a couple of random PC games, 720 in the arcades, Top Skater, that kind of stuff. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But that's pretty amazing that you didn't know much about it. And then here it becomes this juggernaut, this massive
1: thing. <clears throat> Yeah, I think it's like a combination of, of things there. like, you know, I, I learned a lot about skateboarding, uh, but also it works in the opposite direction. Like I took everything that I knew and, you know, everything that people I never NeverSoft knew about how to make games. And then you get the two things and they <makes noise> merge together and it was a, a happy union. And out of that came the Tony Hawk series.
0: Yeah, for sure. Hmm. Uh, so NeverSoft get eventually uh, got acquired by Activision somewhere around 1999. As one of the co-founders, that that had to be excited to get noticed by a massive publisher and likely gave you hope for a bright future. Talk about that a little bit. How did the acquisition end up coming
1: about? Yeah, well, I mean, it kind of for it's like for any startup company, you think you know, the 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 goal is either one of two things, to it start a, a long-running business where you're producing something uh, or to get acquired by someone and you know, make lots of money and it just sure. kind of gave you the best of both worlds and that uh, when they acquired us they said we would have full autonomy and uh, it was just essentially a financial transaction uh, to kind of lock us in and so it was good because you know we got uh, uh, we got paid for it and uh, and we had you know certainty and going through to the future you are know, looking back and you think like, was that the right decision? Should we have uh, held out a little bit longer? But you know, the thing is, it worked out really well uh, for everybody concerned, and uh, yeah, all the uh, people who were around at Neversoft at that time like uh, did really well. So it, w- it was a good thing, and uh, it was it was a happy time because not two years before we were pretty much running out of money, wow. and we we were coming within weeks of having to close the company down uh, and we just, you know, we, we bottomed out and we just managed, you know, Joel was taking out loans on his house or wow. uh, his line of credit, credit card. I mean, and Chris and I didn't have any money at all because we just come over from England with nothing. Uh, and so, you know, we were just scraping through at that point and we were about to run out of money when we just managed to get work and then it took off again. So uh, coming that close to, to losing everything, it was great to, to, you know, get, get locked in on that. (laughs) <laughs> that's pretty crazy. It, it, it almost
0: wasn't, it almost wasn't to be, you know, if, it, yeah, if things wouldn't, you know, it sounds like it was a, a, a almost a, a, some efforts were put forth and whatever else. And I mean, I know that's super common in startups. You know, I, I, I've worked for some startups myself and you end up seeing people do exactly like you said. I've worked for some companies where the CEO had to declare bankruptcy and things like that just to get it off the ground. And then, yeah, I, I was involved in a similar tale, not in video games, but uh, in another uh, uh, branch of work in the sense that all of a sudden things did start to turn around and it got successful and and all of that uh, you know blood sweat yeah. and tears ends up making it all yeah. worth it in it the off. end because it just it turns off. out to be really great so wow that's cool. Okay, so let's talk about your your work at NeverSoft then. So your official title at NeverSoft was that of technical mm-hmm. director. Can you give me a little bit of detail on what, what does that mean? What's technical director? <laughs> what does that entail? <laughs> it's probably a lot uh, of hats it, at first, but it, well,
1: I mean, I, when we started the company, there's me, Chris, and Joel, and so uh, Joel he has the title of president, I believe, on his card right from the start. Okay, and then we 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 say what what a you know, obviously, I'm just a programmer, and Chris is just an artist, and so. Uh, but we're also like owners of the company, and so you have to have fancy titles. So I said, well, I'll be. Uh, you, you're, you're the art director, obviously, Chris, because you're the artist, mm-hmm. and you know I don't be programming director. That sounds a bit weird. I'll be technical director. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I can't remember if I even heard the term before. Sure. Um because yeah, I did all the technical stuff. I I did I did programming. I did you know the technical design documents. I I, uh, I I put the computers uh, together and I I mended the computers and I eventually was responsible for running the network and uh, the backup system and everything. So I was the IT guy. <laughs> so I was just I was just the technical guy. So at the start, it doesn't really mean anything. Sure. Because it's just one person. And even when you get more more people, it's just like you and another guy. But eventually it becomes a bit more hierarchical, where you're you're at the top. Uh, so I'm the technical director, and then you, beneath that you have like lead programmers, or sure. you also have kind of an IT guy as well. And they the all report to me, and I arrange what work they do, and you know talk to everybody else, uh, and that, and how they interface with the art departments, and the design departments, and the testing departments, and the, and the production, and yeah, everything like that. So it's it's just um, keeping all the the complicated technical details in order and running the show basically.
0: Yeah. So you start out with programming and you start out with that whole kind of concept and, and then you end up, you know, wearing lots of hats, as is the case with every startup I've ever been involved with. You do get a title for the sake of you've got to have a title, but then you end up, you know, you end up almost in a managerial position. Did it eventually become, sorry, this is off the cuff, but did did it become, did it eventually become, that's really what you did? You just directed the the staff and the team, or did you still get hands on keyboard and, and program and, and the rest?
1: It, It kind of went up and down. Uh, At the start, obviously, I was very much hands-on programming because there was only a few programmers, only me right at the start. Uh, When we got to Apocalypse, uh, what happened there was that I transitioned to entirely being the producer for that game, for Apocalypse, uh, because we had enough programmers to do the work. We had some very, very capable programmers uh, in the company there. Which is probably why we were running out of money because we had so many people on staff that so we didn't want to fire anybody because we liked everybody. Sure. But, so we had <laughs> we had programmers there. So we had to get a game out in a, basically nine months, uh, start to finish. Right. And so I was very much just uh, on in charge of organizing that. So I, I I was the producer, which meant I I designed a lot of the levels. I would just draw them out on a piece of paper and then give them to a level designer and they will they implement them you varied by designers some people did their own designs uh yeah. and and I would tell the programmers what needed doing and um uh, you know I didn't actually do very much programming at all in that uh in that in that game hmm. but then when it came back to it came to Tony Hawk it kind of flipped back the other way it started out I was more in the producer role and uh, we had somebody doing like the the initial physics just just skating around you know you had Bruce Willis skating around on a skateboard right uh, but then eventually, I, I kind of took over that. Um, you know, kind of it was it was just more straightforward for me to do it myself than to tell someone else to do it. And then I became more involved in that side of things, uh, and it, it worked out better that way. And we we got other people on as producers mm-hmm. uh, at that point. Now we had Scott Peace, who was a wonderful producer, right. who uh, you know, did everything that needed to to be done. So, wow. I, uh, played to my talents.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, and that's always
0: the best place to be. You want to be in a place where you're thriving and you can, you know, your skills let it allowing you to mm-hmm. thrive in the environment. So that's great. So how does that look then when you when you uh, when you founded Neversoft all the way to when you retired from Neversoft about 9 years later. What I mean, your job probably looked vastly different after uh, Underground one it would have been um at the time of retirement were you still doing a lot of the same things or was it just a completely different deal by the time you were ready to be done?
1: No, I was still working a lot on actual programming at the time i wow. uh, there was various aspects of of player control even that I was doing then like some physics things uh but you know a lot of it was was um managing the other programmers is talking to the other programmers and uh making sure everything was done right and debugging like one of my specialties was debugging so finding complicated bugs in the code uh i would i would kind of be the person to drill down into, into certain things where people were having problems uh but yeah i guess towards the end uh of the game series i i, I had Everything working smoothly. Uh, the, the programmers were all, were all doing their jobs, and you know something I worked on towards the end of the, the project was being able to transition out smoothly. So I was working with everybody, setting sure. them up to do what jobs needed to be done after I left.
0: Sure, making a good smooth transition out, making everybody else, you know, making sure that everybody has a good soft landing and they can yeah. they're set up yeah. for success. So yeah, and it worked out. Yeah, that's great. Uh, so, give us maybe a, some of your favorite people that you work with during your time at Neversoft.
1: We always like to oh. hear about that. Uh, well, I was in a, in a room for a long time with uh, um, Gary Justanon and Ryan McMahon, and oh, yeah. <laughs> they were very different people. Uh, <laughs> Gary was this very quirky guy, and Ryan was this very straight-laced guy. And so we had to, we had a lot of fun just kind of joking at each other's expense at that time. But yeah, you know, it was fun sharing a room with people uh on a daily basis like that. Sure. Uh and yeah, I, I I try I try to hire people that I liked mostly. Uh yeah. and when you're working with someone to that degree, especially in the early days, yeah, you, know, you can't help but like like basically become friends with them. You know, For otherwise sure. it's not gonna work out. And so we, we would have uh, the start of the company. Uh, we would like go out for meals after the, after the, uh, the day is over. And like on the weekend, sometimes we'd go out to the local sushi bar and drink way too much uh, sake and then <laughs> walk back to the office and then sleep it off in the office. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, it was, it was uh, almost like a little second family at, at, at first. Yeah. And in, in the early days when you, when you've only got like, uh, yeah, 10, 20 people uh, working there. Sure. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, you know all all the people who worked there were were great. I mean, the, uh, there's, there there were some very talented people like Dave Cowling uh, and uh, Paul Robinson, who did were the engine programmers mm. for uh, for the the Xbox and Nintendo versions of the game that we did in house. Uh, and that they, they were you know, really, really very talented in what they did which was worked out really well for us Because we could just leave them in a room and they would they would churn out the, the that particular version of the game Sure, and then we had some like very talented kind of old-school programmers like Mike Day who uh, did, did some of the like very early 3d stuff for the the engine uh, and he's someone I I actually known since my very first job uh, in England Wow. Uh, I believe. Yeah. So when I first started work like in the early 90s, uh, so I'd, I'd known him a very, very long time and he you kind know, of came over to work for, for me in uh, in America. So you, know, you get these long running relationships uh, within, uh, within the company. And like people who like Dave Cowling, he was one of the people who worked for one of the other spin offs from Malibu, mm. uh, but he came over from England because he knew people. So he had all these connections. Uh, back then in the games industry where people would know other people and yeah. recommend people and then, then you'd hire those those people and you would do it based on recommendations.
0: Sure. Yeah, there's there's always kind of something to be said for uh, they say it's not all about who, you know, but sometimes it can be if you have relationships and you have connections and you've got those networking opportunities with people. A lot of times that leads into, you know, bigger and better stuff as you know, other folks and kind of come yeah. along that way. So. Yeah.
1: And uh Mike Day, the funny story with Mike Day is uh he was a famous juggler. Oh really? <laughs> uh, he and I you know worked with him in England uh you know in the nineties, but I didn't know how to get in touch with him and you know the internet was very very flaky back sure, then. Sure. Yeah. And so what I did was I I posted a note on a uh a a used group, uh a a juggling use group because <laughs> i knew he was a famous juggler and people will know yep. would know him and i said does anybody know mike day and can they get in touch with him and you know obviously because he was a famous juggler uh, then uh, i got in touch with him oh that's amazing <laughs>
0: yeah well cool yeah there's been some great people we've we've heard so many great names over the course of doing this podcast and just gotten to talk to people and it sounds like you guys really were a family i mean obviously yeah. later on as it got so big you know uh, it was i'm sure it was a lot harder to even know everybody's name that worked there because the studio was so large and so you know you lose a little bit of that but yet at the same yeah. time it. The yeah. culture bled through in the games for sure, oh, yeah, and you guys yeah. were very fun loving, and that's pretty apparent. So, yeah, I,
1: I was just looking at the the team members list from Tony Hawk 4, and you know I do remember everybody from that. But I think wow. when I started getting into the Tony Hawk 5, that th- Thug, you know that was just where, you know, I just I probably wouldn't know pretty much everybody there, but yeah, I recognize all these people, and uh, if you if you look at the NeverSoft page on wikipedia yeah. the page that illustrate the picture that illustrates the team is actually a picture from my wedding oh okay i've always and, wondered uh, okay yeah so that's, <laughs> that's me chris and joel sat in the front row yeah, and the entire sure. team ah. and that was basically uh, was that the tony hawk i guess that was the tony hawk team at the time yeah wow. was it the apocalypse team no, that was the apocalypse team i think okay but yeah that's that's the the old school uh, og neversoft uh, in my wedding photograph <laughs> I never knew that.
0: Uh, Mick West Wedding, right there on Wikipedia for you with all of the Neversoft team folks. That's really cool. Okay, so um, you've been cited by most every other Neversoft guest we've interviewed for the podcast as being the mastermind behind the feel of how uh, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater plays, also known as the Neversoft Engine. It's always hard to properly articulate exactly what that means, but if you've played any of the games, it really makes sense. Your resume includes a piece that says you did the initial player control for THPS. Do you feel that it is, by and large, the basis for how the game feels when
1: you play it? Uh, I, I, To a degree, yeah. But I, I think... You know, one thing i I my philosophy was always that a game should be fun uh, as the primary factor that you you think about when you're designing the game you know what makes this fun which seems obvious, but it, it, people don't always think of it like that they think of like what is what is the narrative, what is the character development, you know what is the storytelling uh, elements within the game uh, and what is the feature list but at a very simple level, uh, a game needs to feel. Like it's something you can have fun with. I mean, there's this, you just simple examples like, you know, fidget spinners. This isn't a fidget spinner, but yeah, something you can just have fun with, like uh, tossing a ball around. Like right. juggling is something that you know I, w- I was into as well, you know, along with my my day. Right. And I had a very simple uh, philosophy uh, along those lines that kind of goes back to my my platform game days, which I I, I started out doing. Uh, back in uh, 16-bit games, Sega Genesis and Commodore Amiga yeah. games. And there's the, a the simple thing in a, in a platform game where when you run along and you get to the end of the platform and you jump, and a lot of times what happens if you program it naively and you say if you jump, you, if, you, if you're not on the platform, uh, then when you jump, you fall. Right. And a lot of times that, that lends to people like they run along and they, they jump and then they, they just fall because the it, it didn't work. So, you know, one thing I do there is, like, saying, you know, that physical accuracy isn't the important issue here. What's important is is it feels fun. So if people feel like they should have been able to jump at a certain point, then make them jump. So the goal of player control is kind of mapping the user's expectations onto what actually happens, even if it isn't exactly right. So with the running off the edge of a platform and then jumping, you give them about... um, a tenth of a second at most, a leeway where they can actually jump a little bit late, right. uh, and and make that jump. And it was that kind of philosophy that carried on into the the Tony Hawk stuff. Um, like the 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 air getting air off a half pipe. Mm-hmm. The way that's done in in Tony Hawk is that in the first versions, anyway, we actually added some invisible polygons at the top of each half pipe and essentially the player is just kind of skating on these invisible polygons when they're going through the air so they, it guides the player and then they land back down in the half pipe interesting so It's obviously not at all physically accurate sure uh, but it's a lot more fun because you get to focus on just that that one thing you know essentially it's a platform you're going up you're jumping vertically instead of horizontally so you go up you get to the the lip of the half pipe and you know, at some point you can do like a, a, a little little jump or a spin sure. uh, on that and you, get, and you get air and it feels good. And I always remember one of the best bits of feedback I got from another game programmer uh, was when I showed him an early version of the game and he couldn't figure out how to jump on the half pipe. And then I said, just, you know, just release X when you get to the top. And he was like, and he jumps and he turns, he turns automatically and he comes down. Right. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's fun. <laughs> uh, and it says, Yeah, I think you've got something there. Because just that one thing is funny. You can sit in a half pipe and you can go, Doom, mm-hmm. Doom. Mm-hmm. You can just do little jumps like that yep. and steer it coming down in a, at a certain point. Because you've got that whoosh, whoosh, yeah. uh, pumping action of going through the, through the half pipe, which is fun in itself. For sure. And if you get the actual actions of the game to be fun in themselves, then you've got a game. And this, in a way, was. Based on my experiences playing Super Mario 64, sure, uh, which which was was a game which I think was a big influence on the the Tony Hawk series, <laughs> because it's a game which is just fun to just jump around in. You know, you've got Mario and you can jump off walls and right. you can do various running jumps uh, and things like that. You can do little little jumping up a chimney type thing, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and it's it's just fun to try to time the jumps. Ba-doop, ba-doop, ba-doop. Uh, and yeah, I tried to capture some of that spirit uh, in, in the Tony Hawk games. Wow. And, uh, I, I don't
0: think I've ever heard prior to you that uh, Super Mario 64 was an influence for how <laughs> the, the Tony Hawk's Pro Skater ends up being played. That's really fascinating. I love it. But it makes sense because that's a big thing that I've always uh, marveled about with this game and with this series is I really feel like you guys captured it. You captured the fun element of it we'll talk about we've got some questions along these lines uh, going down the list here but um it makes a lot of sense now putting that all together you know that that you intentionally defied some of the laws of what i guess is realistic right so. in 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 trade-off in favor of making it fun making it playable yeah. making it something that is enjoyable and you know hits that part of your brain where are like wow this is enjoyable this is a lot of fun i'm not doing anything more than just enjoying myself right now playing this game
1: yeah yeah um, we, one of the things where that came across was you know you probably heard the story of the the demo disc uh where uh we created like a one level demo and i think the early versions of this yeah, you know, the first level that we did that turned into the demo disc were we had a long downhill run right and then an area at the bottom with some half pipes and uh, yep. And the long downhill run, you know, that's kind of fun, downhill jam type thing. But it's Mm -hmm. it's, it's brief and you don't get to repeat it so very easily without going all the way back to the start. Whereas the the warehouse area at the bottom has like half pipes in it and a a, a sunken pool in it, uh, which you can just mess around in. And it's the messing around in in an area that ended up being more fun because you get to focus on doing one particular thing over and over again, which is kind of part of skateboarding. Uh, in that you try to nail a trick and you do the same type of thing here. You try to nail a trick or nail a line uh, in, in that area. Yeah. Uh, and that's you know, a big part of the evolution of the game was the realization that uh, it doesn't have to be a, a long series of things that you have to do. Mm-hmm. That's part of it. We have lines. It can be just one half pipe. And if you get that one half pipe to be fun, then having everything else being fun is uh, is a lot easier. Yeah,
0: that's a great story. I that, I, I don't remember if somebody else shared that same concept and it makes a lot of sense and I think I uh, the the linear levels like Mall and Downhill Jam, they're fun and there's I think mm-hmm. some intentional things put in there, but it seems like more people would have preferred or do prefer, I guess, to the, the kind of those warehouse and and hangar and you know some of those more classic levels kind of more enclosed and whatever else where the literary ones you go down through it i mean later on in some of the classic rebates we end up seeing warps put in at the bottom of downhill jam and at the bottom of all, so that you can you know teleport back up to the top so that you can do it all over again which speaks to that repetition that you're talking about Mm -hmm. you know
1: so yeah that, that repetition like uh uh, a, a huge part i think of the game is the fact that you can just pause and down retry uh so you press the start button yep. the menu pops up and it's got i think continue restart uh main menu and you know, so if you if you mess up you could just like pause retry and instantly you're back in the game yep and that was just a huge part of 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 you know, the replayability of the game is removing the friction uh that prevents people from trying things over and over again
0: yeah for sure so we talked about this briefly but
1: how much did your work
0: on the games prior to uh thps contribute to the end result was thps a brand new concept or did other game uh did the uh, player control in other games and the movement contribute to how players would be controlled in tony hawk
1: well you know there wasn't really uh that much direct correlation, because the game before we we did before was um, Apocalypse, which was a, a running, jumping, climbing, shooting game. Right. And obviously, there's very little, well, there's no running, jumping, climbing, or shooting right. in the, in the first Tony Hawk. Right. Uh, so we basically take the very simplest parts of the engine, like displaying the levels and displaying 3D characters and having a camera uh, that follows uh, the character. And then we have to have physics. Uh, so the physics there was you know, it's a variation of walking physics, but it's, it's, it's rolling physics. It's following the surface. Uh, and, and jumping. You know, jumping is a fundamental part, fundamental part of video games. Like I was talking yep. before about you know, jumping at the end of a platform. So that, jumping, the jumping aspect was the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been programming jumping characters in, in video games for like 10 years before right. that. So I knew, I knew how to make a character jump. Uh, but and, and then rolling over a surface is a relatively straightforward problem, but it was something we hadn't really done as such, like a, a rolling a rolling thing. So it took us a little while to get uh, get started. You know, the first version of the physics there was done by a guy called Christopher Erickson, okay. uh, who was only there for the first I don't know um, third or so of the project, mm-hmm. and he just took the the Bruce Willis character and um made him skate over a surface we had a lot of problems i remember with with collision detection with, with krista's early code hmm. uh and he kept falling through the level which is always a problem with video games And sure. i think uh, krista got a bit obsessed by this and he, he ended up writing uh one of the definitive books on collision detection uh, oh wow later in his career <laughs> which i'm sure was, was somewhat influenced by the the, the annoying experiences <laughs> he had trying to get uh, Bruce Willis to stay on a skateboard on a (laughs) a level. Bruce couldn't be contained to the mere (laughs)
0: planes. (laughs) That's awesome. Uh, So what other elements do you feel uh, factor into how Tony Hawk feels I mean the game truly masters a great mix and blend of a degree of realism but it also adds an immense fun factor for the player like we've been talking about what what do you feel like what's that secret sauce what's that formula that makes that all work
1: together well yeah I think it, uh, having a, a bunch of easily accessible goals and you get to choose which goal you decide to go after was a, was a big part of it you're not just simply like a lot of games before that were kind of linear you, you would go through them and you do one thing and do the next thing sure. and like I said with um, Super Mario 64 and uh, uh, I guess to an extent the Zelda games You have a choice as to what challenge you want to accept right and so that that was kind of a fun thing uh, You not, you're not just simply saying, you know, you do this level race against these people and then move on to the next level it, it's, you, you get a, a number of goals to do within the level. And so it's whatever you personally enjoy. And you don't have to do all the goals. You, you, you're allowed to progress just after doing, doing some of them. So it, it, it made it more accessible to different people who wanted to do different things. But I think a, a big part of you know, what the game is, is uh, the lines, like getting a, a line you can do through a level uh, which could be just something like, you know, getting the skate letters as quickly as possible, but right. it could be, you know, a way of getting a high score. Uh, and this obviously became a thing is like, you know, like getting a high score. And mm-hmm. remember, actually, the high the high score table <laughs> wasn't something that was originally in the game. And I said, like, yeah, why don't we have a high score table like in the arcades? You know, like, sure. you know, you go into Space Invaders or whatever, and you have a little high score table, and uh, it's it's a fun thing. Trying to get a high score, you know, in itself becomes a fun thing. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but, I think people almost thought it was like this archaic aspect of a video game that you, you wouldn't have in, in modern games in your high score table. It seems a bit silly, uh, but it, it worked out very well. So, yeah, I think yeah, these, the kind of choose your own path and choose your own way of doing things uh, was, so you don't, you don't have to figure out what is the one way of achieving this goal. Right. Uh, you, you're given a task. And you can you can accomplish that in a in a variety of ways. Like if there's a letter you know, up on above a building, it doesn't matter how you get to it, as long as you, you do get to it. And there could well be a few different ways. And you can use your own creativity and skills and tricks you might personally have developed to, to, to do that. Uh, I think it's it, it just gives you this great sense of hmm. you know freedom of being able to do things, which is just fun.
0: Yeah that's well said yeah that all i can unpack that for hours because there's a whole bunch of ways that uh, that ends up it translates even to today you're talking about choosing your own path there's there's all of these in within the hardcore community of this series there's all of these kind of little sub contests and things that have come up like what are called get theirs and you know, figure out the most creative way of doing something in this game. And that's, yeah. that's all speaks to that open kind of concept where it's like, yeah, you don't have to do this the same way. Yeah. There is one tangible goal at the end, but how do you reach a hundred thousand points or how do you reach a hundred yeah. million points? Well, you can do that in a variety of ways. So Yeah.
1: And that also goes back to kind of finessing an individual uh, trick or way of doing something which is part of, you know, skate culture and obviously, like, you yes. know, game culture as well is that, you know, you want to, you set your mind to, like, I think I can, if I just jump this way and land on that and get enough speed, then I can get over to that. And then sure. you try it like a hundred times and then you eventually you nail it and then it's just this yeah. excellent rush of being able to do something you've been trying to do for so long. Yeah. Hmm. So did you guys have any – was there any sort of
0: existing coding engine um, when you guys developed or were most of the gameplay elements
1: coded from scratch for the first Tony Hawk? Um, it, it was very much from scratch. Like, we had the rendering engine, the graphics engine, the, the player control and the player elements. Uh, they, they used just the very basic thing in like you have a player – so it was called uh, uh, in, the Bruce, in, in the code it's called C Bruce uh, for C being class in C++ okay. uh, and you know, Bruce being Bruce Willis. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then I think the like other objects in the game were just used the same object class that we had. I mean, it's the, the object is the base type of a, a box or whatever that's in the game. You have sure. something like that. Uh, and, but then there was lots of variations we had to make to the, the physics, but we had the, sim- the simplest thing, you could draw polygons, you could draw models, you could have collision detection, you could see where you were, you had basic math, but on, upon that you had to build uh, everything else, so you had to build like grinding rails, you had to build uh, skating half pipes, and uh, uh, and doing the whole trick system.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, the reason for that question is there's this long-standing debate on whether or not the the large basis of this game was based on the renderware engine. And so yeah. there's been like this debate amongst some of the people that get into the modding of this game and everything else. And I don't know why it's such a big issue, <laughs> but it was one that I wanted to, to oh. pick your brain on. And, and was this ever based on or, 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 or running on top of renderware or anything like that?
1: Well, Tony Hawk 3 on the PlayStation was running on renderware. Okay uh but renderware just as it as the name suggests, it just renders things so it's sure. a way of displaying uh a three d world mm-hmm. and displaying uh three d objects and with, with animation, I believe yeah there must have been animation, so you get yeah you know, people doing things sure uh so we use renderware because we thought it would be a quick way of getting up and running on on PlayStation uh, 2. Okay. Uh, Because we developed our own engine before that. Mm -hmm. And so it worked out okay in that we got a game out. Right. But the problem was RenderWare It had a few bugs in it, which was difficult for us to work with because, you know, they're their bugs and it was their code and they're supposed to fix them and then they wouldn't fix them or they... You know, not that it wouldn't fix them, but they they would say, "Oh, have you tried this? Have you tried turning off this?" And <laughs> and, and the game was still crashing. So eventually, I had to get in there and, and fix it myself. Uh, and at the time, they didn't have a Nintendo version of the engine. I think it was the GameCube we were working on back then. Uh, so we had to do our own GameCube version of their entire engine, essentially. Wow. Uh, so we had to kind of abstract it away from the code so we're not, you know, refactor it for GameCube code and then make make it so that we could have the GameCube version sitting underneath that, uh, which ended up being a bit complicated. And because we'd already done that, then we could just, you know, for the next game, we dropped RenderWare entirely and we just, you know, in, no trace of it remained and we, we had our, our, our own uh, version, you know, version by our own engine. Uh, because, you know, you you, you abstracted You have to code in a way that's platform independent because we're doing three versions simultaneously. We lead on the PlayStation 2 version, but we had the Xbox and uh, the GameCube mm-hmm. uh, versions that had to run, you know, in parallel. Right. So you you set the code up so that the, the, the code is mostly platform agnostic. Makes sense. You know, so it wouldn't know what's running underneath uh, the, the hood. Interesting. Uh, so once we... When I was set up, you can just remove renderware and slot in it's not not quite that simple, but <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, oversimplifying it but yeah yeah, yeah. it was it. it was all all never soft code and th- that was nothing to do with the gameplay. Uh, that's only the display code, it? Only the
0: display code. Interesting. Yeah. Maybe so, some sound. But... Yeah, that segue is perfect into this next thing. So, Ralph D'Amato was on the podcast, and he said that you basically decided, and I'm guessing based on what you said, you decided to rewrite the Neversoft engine over the course of a summer. It, was that something, was that based on this renderware thing? Is that, or was, no, was that something what... else?
1: I think what he's referring to there was the change I made to the object system in the game. Okay. Uh, when I changed it from a hierarchical system to a component system. Hmm. Uh, and there's, there's, uh, a relatively famous article in game developer magazine called I think, evolve your hierarchy, where I described the process of doing this. Wow. And, uh, the problem, the problem was that, uh, in, traditional ways of doing games you would have something like uh, a base object which is, just has its position and uh, a way of being drawn in the in the scene and then you would derive a class from that and then you would add things to that and then you would derive classes from that and you would add things to those so you'd have this hierarchy simple object more complicated object really complicated object very very complicated object ridiculously complicated object <laughs> uh, and they're all kind of tied together uh, in this big hierarchy and you know, I'd read about a simpler way of doing this which is to have a very simple base class and then you have a list of all the different types of things you might need like you might have like simple physics you might you might have by like, being a sound source you might have being something uh, that that you know, interacts with the environment in a certain way and then you just take the simple thing and you take these components and you plug them in and this is the way most game engines work now if you look at uh, like Unity or uh, Unreal Engine, like sure. they, they just use component systems like this. Wow. But at the time it was kind of new and people didn't understand it. And so I had to kind of just go ahead and implement it and then just <laughs> tell people, this is what we're doing now. And then when they start uh, doing a, a typical inheritance of, of the class, I was just going to you know, smack them around a little bit and say, no, just do it as a component. <laughs> uh, and it just made, uh, made implementing new features very easy because you could actually kind of just set up a script and say like here's a new type of class and it has these things off wow. your ankle
0: I hope all of I hope all the uh modders and uh, all all of the folks that uh, are into this stuff are, are watching this <laughs> <laughs> and paying attention because I think they're gonna find it really fascinating. I know I do. I dabble in pro- programming a little bit for my day job. I do more front end development and things like that. But uh I understand some of what you're saying. But but uh yeah, this is great. Uh it's putting some rumors to bed, I can tell you right now. It's uh there's always been this speculation on things. So thank you so much for uh being willing to go into the depth of the of the technical part of it. So that's great. <clears throat> Um, so it, it's been widely pub- publicized that you guys took cues from the arcade game Top Skater and the approach to the game some have accused the gameplay of Tony Hawk for being a little too arcadey uh, and not simulation enough it sounds like from what you said especially on the approach and taking cues from Super Mario and so forth were you guys happy with the approach of this not being a simulator And it was, and was that truly intentional to not make it like this is realistic skateboarding 101
1: Yeah, totally. Uh, People kept making suggestions that would make the game more realistic, and I kept saying, "Well, that would make the game less fun. Why would you want to do that?" Like they would say, "Every time you bail, your board should take damage, so it gets slower and slower." Okay. Which is the stupidest idea ever. Who wants to have a game (laughs) where that happens? Right. It's it's like you want to. If anything, you want the game to become more powerful every time you bail, so it's more and more fun. There you go. Uh, So. Yeah, the game is deli- not deliberately uh, not physically accurate. I mean, if we could make it physically accurate and still be fun, that would be great. And sure. you know, that's it's not an impossible thing, but it's it's a different type of game.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I, the The game I'm doing in some ways is, like I was saying before, derived from my experience in platform games. Right. Which is about running up to things and jumping at just the right moment. Uh, it's about timing things, and it's about planning ahead when you're, you're looking and seeing what's, uh, what's coming up ahead. Like I have this this whole theory of game design, which is based on micro plans. Like the player is constantly making a, a tiny little plan about what they're going to do, and then they're implementing that plan, and a combination of how good their plan is and how good their skill is and how well the game responds to that is what makes fun gameplay. Sure. So when you're, you're grinding a line, there's a gap. Between two rails, you expect to be able to jump and land on the other rail, and if you do the right movements with your thumb, then you should you should land there right you expect to be able to grind along a telephone line even though grinding along telephone lines is not something that happens in, in real life right and so you expect to be able to jump down from the top of a very very tall building and land in a half pipe and go whoosh. Uh, out of there, even though that's not going to happen in in real life either. Right. Yeah, but these things are a lot of fun to yes. do, and it's a game. It's not a real life simulator. If you want a real life simulator, go out and buy a skateboard. There you go. <laughs> That's great. I love that that was intentional because it's one of the
0: things that I've loved about the game series. And there's there's been this long standing debate, especially amongst the hardcore skateboard community, that it's not realistic enough. And you know they they gripe about trick animations being perfect and all mm-hmm. this other sort yeah. of thing. And I mean, in 2020, 2021, there have been some skate simulators, and I won't name them because yeah. everybody has opinions about them. But <laughs> but to me, they're they're fun for a bit to go into an open world and find a, a, a bunker ledge or something to be able to do a tail slide down and then that's it. But you, f- I find myself, I don't know about everybody else, but I find myself going, okay, I, I did that, I found my line and it was a little satisfying, but now what? <laughs> there's there's not enough element in there for me, for my taste, yeah. to make that, a, the replayability on some of those more simulation focused don't seem to be as, as strong as Tony Hawk is, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, Yeah. well, I think the thing is you're never going to please everyone, and not everyone likes the same things in a game. Right. Uh, Like, some people don't like the story elements in the later games, and some people really like the story elements in the later games. So the more hardcore gamers kind of prefer, uh, you know, just pure gameplay. And some people think that Tony Hawk 3, with its kind of very empty levels... Uh, was was one of the purer games because you know you you would end up just you're skating through a deserted uh, Los Angeles and you know, that was that was more pure than bumping into people constantly in the in the underground uh, yeah. uh, levels but yeah you 're not going to please everyone and so I set out to do a game that I personally would find to be fun and you know, using elements that I were in other games like super mario uh, sixty four mm-hmm. that were yeah, Super Mario 64 has been widely acclaimed as one of the greatest video games of all time. Absolutely. Uh, and so <laughs> modeling things on on that, you're not going to go far wrong, even though you, you're going to have people saying, oh, it's too arcadey. But, you know, it's, it, it is a game right. and uh, it's a game that in, involves skateboarding, but it's not actually skateboarding.
0: Well, you, it's a game that I love to play, too, so you, you have my vote. And there's uh, millions of others that I think would agree, so um, that's great. Uh, so, um, without getting critical of any other studio's work, other games have tried to mimic the feel of the games you worked mm-hmm. on and largely failed, being described with the phrase, it just doesn't feel right. Do you think that's because you guys took so long and worked so hard to fully perfect so many elements of it?
1: No, <laughs>
0: no. Okay. <laughs>
1: no, I mean, we, we, uh, well, I mean, we were rushed. Uh, <laughs> okay. out quickly. uh I, th- I think perhaps it- it's more to do with not the time, but the focus mm-hmm. and focusing on, on getting these things right and, and, and luck in a way, having, uh, people in the position who had, gone through the ringer of having done a a shitty platform game before and knowing what went wrong and what felt wrong and and then playing other games and knowing what feels right and then just just doing that and and having a production team who also shared that vision because sometimes you have a producer comes on a game and they say, "Oh, yeah, wouldn't it be great if we uh, i don't know we 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 switch the camera to overhead mode when he goes on a rail or something like that, some ridiculous idea that would kind of ruin the gameplay uh, but yeah you know the, it sounds like a good idea, and like all these things about introducing more realism and things like that they sound like good ideas, but yeah, you know, the producer perhaps hasn't had the deep experience of." Coding exactly how that works and then how that feels and so they don't they don't really understand you know, how you're going to get a fun game out of it uh, And you know, they, they are perhaps not Hardcore gamers themselves. They're not like twitch gamers uh, I wasn't you know essentially a twitch gamer, but we had twitch gamers there You know someone who has very very fast reflexes and very fast fast hand movements and sometimes, yeah, they would they would come to me and they would say like, oh, there's a little bug that happens when you do this. So I would do what they told me to do, and uh, I couldn't do it. <laughs> and <laughs> then then I'd I'd try it several times, and they, they kept telling me how to do it. And then I said, well, you should show me how to do it. And the guy goes, his <clears throat> his thumbs move in a blur. Uh, and something happens, and then I I have to figure out how to work with that. But if you're a producer who's just playing the game themselves, you go, this is fun, yeah, I can jump over this thing. You're not really getting what the hardcore people are getting, and so you end up with a game that appeals to you as a producer uh, who doesn't really play games that much, but not to the hardcore people. Oh, wow. The feel of other games, it does really boil down to the the microsecond reactions uh, of what happens when you're pressing the buttons. Sure. I wrote an article for game developer magazine called pushing buttons, where I went into this into some, in some depth. And I also have another article called uh, programming responsiveness uh, where I talk about the, the lag between when you push a button and when something happens on screen. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for example, just jumping, you know, you, you, know, you press a button or you release a button and then your character jumps Right. You want to have that, that time be as small as possible. Mm-hmm. And I think what happens in some games is they do not prioritize that. And so you get this lag between yep. you pressing the button and something happening uh, or just moving the stick and something happening so it feels kind of mushy or it feels like it's not happening exactly right. And it's difficult to synchronize things you know in games where things are synchronized like guitar hero for example you've got to synchronize notes with actions for sure uh it's very very important that it's you know right on them right on the millisecond absolutely uh and not all games get that right yeah that's super key in this game
0: man <laughs> the real hard chorus of the players if it's not dead on dull <laughs> They'll like literally almost buy a new controller because the reaction has to be so precise and dead on. And if it's not, then yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. yeah, And that's something I I always really liked is having games run at 60 rather than 30 frames per second. And the first two games were were at um, at 30. Mm -hmm. And then Tony Hawk 3, I thought, oh, it's this super powerful computer. We're going to have it run at 60. Right. Which turned out to be a bit of a challenge because it means you have to make trade-offs as to how much you can put in the game, and not everyone was happy with that. And uh, and you know, a lot of people can't even tell. And you know, sometimes when I'm playing the game, you can't tell if it's 60 or 30 just by looking at it. Right. But I think it does alter the feel of the gameplay, you know, sure. especially for the more the more hardcore people. But even just you know, people are picking up the controller. If you've got something running at uh, at 60 frames per second, like the it, it it halves the response time. It's not just like 160, I think it can be several frames of difference. Exactly. And so I think that can make a big difference. I mean, there's a reason why virtual reality headsets run at 120 or 240 mm-hmm. because the human brain expects everything to work in real time. And you know, I mean, that's a very important part of gameplay, I think.
0: Yeah, absolutely uh so let's talk a little bit in the character i'll get it out in a second in the character control and physics uh you all made tweaks over the course of the series pro skater one obviously feels uh pretty different than under underground one does was there a continued effort to tweak and iterate on the physics engine over the course of the series
1: yeah uh i mean it wasn't really the physics in terms of like you know when you jump or go on a, on a half pipe and mm-hmm. changing that feel of it it was it was. it adding capabilities was was an important part of the game. You know, obviously there's the, the famous uh, additions in the first versions of the game, like uh, the, the manual right. and the revert, right, uh, which allowed you to extend tricks. And then, you know, later on we got things like, uh, you know, doing a wall plant and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, so it became, it became increasingly hard there to add things like that that were, were, were to the same degree of magnitude. But, you know, we'd constantly try to, Make the game more interesting. Sure. Uh, like you know, in in in, in underground, you, know, you can drive a car around. Right. Uh, so yeah, there's just more and more. The more fun things you can add to the, a game, know, yeah, the better. Uh, there's, there's in some ways it's it's hard to stay on schedule because you're so busy adding things to the game, and it's you're going to know when to when to cut it off. So, but it's it's good to add more with each version of a game. I think. Sure. So when you move
0: from PlayStation One to PlayStation Two, you get into that at the at the time next gen, obviously mm-hmm. way last gen now. But uh, how much did that move factor into how gameplay was tweaked? You talked about the frames, the FPS, and things like that. Was there more?
1: Yeah, well, I think we we also decided to go for more of an open world uh, way of doing the the games there, and make it bigger and have the the goals spread out. You'd have to go and find somebody, and this was more of a you know kind of a Zelda slash Mario type thing you would have to go to a place to do a goal rather than just like you know choosing to do uh, a thing uh, and you know there was the transition to 60 which was was kind of a big thing uh, yeah. I, I think all oh, we did really we things like sketching uh, being you know, behind a car yep just fun little things but it was still a core it was the same type of thing you know, you're, you're trying to get high scores and you know do certain lines and collect certain things so it's the the, the core gameplay was still there i think it, it just really gave us the opportunity to um you know finesse what we were doing in the previous games and you do things in a, a more uh impressive and immersive way sure. uh, and 20 or 3 was a very nice game i think
0: some would consider it their favorite of the series. Yeah. My personal is four, but that's for a whole lot of reasons I won't go into. <laughs> but um, um, So let's talk about Spider-Man a little bit. So you worked sure. on Spider-Man for them. Uh, came out around the same time as Pro Skater 2 did. Um, so in playing Spider-Man, it seems evident many of the same elements of character control, physics, those types of things are kind of the same as in Tony Hawk. Grossly over- oversimplifying it, was Spider-Man basically Tony Hawk 2 without the skateboard?
1: I wouldn't really say that's okay. true. I mean, like uh, you know, Spider-Man. Uh, a lot of the stuff there, if you take, a, if you ignore walking around, which wasn't really in the, the the Tony Hawk games, Spider-Man is about swinging from invisible buildings and yeah. Uh, yeah. crawling on walls and ceilings. So uh, yeah, you know, those aspects of it were were kind of different. Yeah, you know, sure, there was the code underlying code. A lot of that was the same. Mm-hmm uh but the the player control I think was very very different, and I didn't work directly on that game yeah. oh, okay. uh, so mostly the, my contribution there would have been you know, the, the code that existed already that that ended up in the game, and like you know some uh, uh, vague things that I contributed to it like yeah i i i was <laughs> I was behind the idea of the invisible buildings like you didn't have to have a building to uh, swing your web from in the the (laughs) first Spider-Man game right just made it a lot easier you didn't have to worry about it but you know the later games you did have to have a building and it worked out very well too Uh, but yeah I wouldn't say that 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 Spider-Man really uh, was like like Tony Hawk it was pretty much a a different game and we the company kind of split into two teams at the time because we didn't know how big Tony Hawk was going to be right so our, our idea of growing the company was to have multiple projects so we had Tony Hawk 2 running and we had Spider-Man running Uh, and then after that Tony Hawk got so big that we didn't do any uh, secondary projects and it was all Tony Hawk for a while
0: yeah Yes, yeah, so the first that Spider Man game was a blast. I think it was, uh, I, I think it was, it, it got a level of success, but I sure enjoyed playing it. And then, you know, fast forward to to the Spider Man that Insomniac did a couple of years ago. Wow. <laughs> Crazy. They basically redid, you know, New York, you know, in real time, kind of. Yeah. And you talk yeah, about, yeah, open, you know, open world and everything. Just amazing yeah. stuff. So. <laughs> um. Um, so how many, if any, of the walking mechanics that were used in Spider-Man would eventually make their way into Underground 1 gameplay when the
1: players were given the option to walk? Uh, I, None, no, I don't think really. I think it was It was, it was the a stretch, it. but I thought I'd at ask. At that time, it was it was a pretty different code base uh, okay. by the time we got to implementing walking, because mm-hmm. uh, the Spider-Man di- game was done at the, the time of uh, Tony Hawk 2. Mm-hmm. and I don't think we had walking in until four. I'm not sure if that's correct or not, but, yeah, but anyway, walking, it would have been very different.
0: Walking wasn't till underground one. Four was, okay. you couldn't right. get off your board yet. And that okay, okay. walking was actually, for some people, you you talked, it's funny in guests that we've talked to on the podcast, just people we've talked to, when you guys introduced the, the revert and That that mechanic and then Mm -hmm. the manual mechanic that ruined it for some players, (laughs) which is funny because I thought it was great. Oh, of course, exactly. Back to what you said before. But then when walking was really the tipping point for some people, there were a lot of people that never they bought Underground One, but then they just stopped They just would always play Mm -hmm. Tony Four because they thought walking completely ruined the game. (laughs) So yeah. That's why it say, sticks people, out in People my have mind. different
1: expectations totally. of the game. And uh, you know, a lot of people loved Tony Hawk Underground. They think it was the greatest thing ever. It was like, for many people, they, they felt like it was a, you know, a quantum leap. Yep. Yep. Uh,
0: so. It's consistently called out by, we interview a lot of players that have played this series for years and years. And it's consistently number one on lots and lots of really really i mean these are people that score billions of points that we interview on here in a lot of cases and that's not exaggeration (laughs) they're just insane how much they play this game and how much they have played it over the course of time and uh Yeah. yeah they'll cite underground one as their favorite by far.
1: Well, I think uh, a lot of the level designers uh, were reaching the, the peak of their ability in mm-hmm. terms of you know, putting fun things in the level. Mm-hmm. Uh, There's people like, like Chad Finley and uh, Brian Jennings, uh, mm-hmm. uh, who were just really good at putting fun lines and fun things to do in in the, in the game, and that had essentially a very similar engine for. For three years at that point sure. and so they they got very good at doing it and that's mm-hmm. you know even though there was this other stuff in the game as well the core fun gameplay was still there
0: yeah manhattan in underground one is consistently mentioned as the favorite level by players um there's a lot in that level it's very very well done i think just the the vastness of the tall buildings and everything else really attribute to that love for it and there's so much dimension to it and every area has such unique parts to it that i think you know people just really have gravitated towards that level and love it so yeah. <clears throat> um so um who else you've know you've uh, mentioned a few people who else on the team helped with the character control physics engine that whole kind of aspect
1: of it mean well, uh, the big guy for me would be Scott Pease, who was the producer uh right from the, the earliest versions of the game, Scott Pease. He worked at Activision originally and then he he moved over to work at neversoft and uh i you know I program physics and I uh, uh, programmed in uh, a system for allowing people to implement like tricks and things like that. And so Scott would take what I did, and he would write these little tiny little scripts or, you know, with the people would write them as well. But you know, he was he was very much kind of an attention to detail guy. And he was someone who was very insistent on, on getting uh, certain things right. And he, he came up with the the original control scheme, like where the button, which buttons do what, uh, I think we had kind of something quite different, well, not very different, but you know, I think we had one of the shoulder buttons for Grind or something like that at the, in the original ones. Uh, what was that? Yeah, I can't remember now. But anyway, he, he was very a very big contributor to that. Uh, in, in later versions of the game, uh, Dan Nelson, this guy who joined the team, he, he had a physics PhD. Wow. and, and so we, we, he worked on the physics of the game even though it was nothing at all to do with like what you do in a physics phd <laughs> right, right. which is like energy levels of quantum quarks and things <laughs> sure uh, and he's doing like how do you make a traffic cone bounce around uh, in a car park uh, <laughs> uh, so wow. but he was he was very good at adding things various, mm-hmm. various various physical elements to the game and i think he he did that for a while after i left as well wow um, I'm going to
0: skip ahead for the sake of time because I know we only have you here for uh, another little bit. So I'm going to get to some of the questions that I think might uh, really uh, be of interest to the audience. So um, so each each title in the series seemed to build on the previous, not only in mechanics and features, but also in success. Did it start to become challenging at any point to try and determine what the next title would consist of and how you could top the previous one?
1: Not for me. Uh, I think it might have done after I left because there's been so many. Uh, yeah. But, you know, each, each iteration when I was there was kind of bigger and better than the previous version. And uh, that's just what we tried to do. Like, you know, we only had so much time for for one version. Then when you come to the next one, you, we, we've got more code in place and we have more experience. And so we're able to build on that and build something something bigger and better. Sure. Uh, but I think perhaps after I left, uh, it became more of a challenge because you know, how much bigger can you actually go? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it actually ended up from hearing from some of the previous guests and Chris Roush was just expressed how he ended up putting stuff in there just for the sake of adding a mechanic or whatever. Right. You know, when you get to American Wasteland where you're where you're doing parkour stuff and flips with the character while walking and things yeah. like that, it became a little right. bit over the top. <laughs> yeah, that's
1: and that's kind of the thing. Like people put things in, like yeah, uh, it sounds like fun in a meeting, but uh, is it really fun, or is it just something you're adding because it it sounds cool? sure yeah
0: um so you alluded to this slightly earlier you were always under a really tight timeline to deliver the next title to the series within a year uh do you ever Mm -hmm. wish you could have had longer and really get everything into the game as you intended or did did deadlines (laughs) help keep you
1: focused the deadlines certainly helped us keep focused and i think that's one of the reasons that it worked out so well is that we had these these strict deadlines and uh you know, if you have a schedule, uh, that's great, but your schedules have to be living documents. And every week the schedule would change because the stuff that we knew we weren't going to get in. And sometimes we add new things, but mostly we'll be taking things out. Mm-hmm. So you start out with this whole list of things that you kind of want to do. If you have two years, it's so easy. You just fritter away three months working on something that doesn't really matter. Right. But having that focus really helped.
0: That's interesting. I would, I would have thought almost the opposite for some reason, that like, well, I really wish we would have had on... more time so that we could get, you know, this in that, you know, whatever. Yeah.
1: <laughs> if, if perhaps later in the, in, the, in the project when people have become more disciplined, uh, but I, we did not have that discipline and we, it, we really helped that we had the hammer of getting out by, by Thanksgiving, uh, hanging over our heads all the time. So, and we did. We got out games and they were great.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um so um you, ha- you saw this shift, and you talked about it earlier uh, as well, just briefly. But you had the core gameplay, classic two-minute timer, and then we see that change. That's in one, two, and three. Then in, in Pro Skater Four, we see that change, and even further in Underground One, into more of an open-world concept where there's you go to the mm-hmm. NPC and there's a story mode with cutscenes and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. How was that transition? Was that just, like you said, just the idea of let's try to continue to make this more fun. Let's iterate on it. Let's do something fresh and new.
1: Yeah, I mean, in, in part, it was kind of looking at other games and seeing what they do. Yeah, uh, you know, We were obviously like influenced, like I said, by the Nintendo games like Mario and Zelda mm-hmm. uh, just in a way of doing things. But you, know, the, you have limits if you have this this two-minute thing. Right. And, you know, we had Free Skate and the other thing, but mm-hmm. just having those two-minute timer all the time, it, it was very restrictive on the gameplay. So getting rid of the timer, ex- except for certain challenges, sure. uh, just allowed you to... People have more freedom to try doing things in a, a certain way that didn't need to fit within that that, that two-minute slot. Uh, so it's just kind of a natural kind of expansion of the gameplay, I think.
0: Yeah. Hmm. Uh, so did you... Um... Did you contribute to the development of any of the split screen or online multiplayer modes, king of
1: the hill, capture the flag, that whole kind of thing? Uh yeah, but in the sense that I was technical director. Okay. Sort <laughs> <That's laughs> part, part part game designer. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but uh, no there there was people working on those who you know, would yeah, you know, I think I can't remember who it was for the early versions of it, but yeah, you know, we would have just just t- give them, you know, the the goals to do and like have them implement uh, what he was uh and they worked out very well uh it's but i, I would be involved more in the, the technical aspects like how do you keep the game working work. properly with the split screen got it and not have it crash yeah that
0: makes sense um so we talked about this a little bit. Various mechanics added over time to the games: manuals, reverts, spine transfers, walking. Are any of those mechanics that you wish yourself would have never made it into the series?
1: Hmm. Uh, I kind of—I think I was never really a big fan of like the walking aspects and wall walking, yeah, things like that. Because I—I like uh, the flow, so I like the continuation of velocity. I don't like things to kind of stop. Uh, the mm-hmm. movement. So uh, I like I like you know smoothly going through the levels. So I, I just love going along a long line, and doing the jumping and uh, uh, grinding and whatnot uh, through that. But it's not a big deal really. You, d- you don't have to use these mechanics if you don't want to. Yep. And you know, there probably are you know, there are some goals where you do have to use them. But you can probably get through the game without uh, without using them you know, very much, and you can certainly have a fun time playing the game. Uh, without using them
0: yep Uh, here's a big one from the community Um, there's this option to turn auto kick on or off providing the players substantial increase speed while skating grinding manually compared to the default setting that's when it's off when it's on it's it's just happens is that slight change in the speed physics a design choice
1: I don't remember. Okay, It might well have been a bug. But, uh, <laughs> interesting,
0: uh, and then it ends up becoming I, a toggle. <laughs> I
1: can certainly imagine it uh, being, because if it's just a you know, slight difference, it could be just a, a, a way the code is implemented. You end up getting like plus one on uh, in a certain way of doing it. But, yeah, I don't really remember implementing it deliberately like that.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Uh, how's, what's your opinion on the PC? ports tony hawk's pro Skater 3 4 and then we have underground one um that one actually interestingly enough was only released in australia it's become somewhat of a unicorn within the community if you can get Uh, a physical copy of underground one for pc it's like the holy grail of some sort
1: yeah Yeah. i had nothing to do with the pc ports and i don't think i've ever played one actually thinking about it so i I really couldn't comment on that i do think that I think the guy who did one might have been Mike Lindsay, who was one of the old school people from Malibu, which is interesting, having these connections. Yeah. Yeah, He was some some guy who spun off from Malibu like us and then ended coming back together again years later. Yeah. I could be misremembering that there. Don't quote me. Well, you can quote me, but... (laughs) (laughs) don't quote me as you say
0: it on there i love it um is there any is there are there any mechanics other concepts that you worked on over the course of your time there that never came to fruition something that you envisioned or something that ended up on the cutting room floor that might be of interest
1: i don't you know i was thinking about that i don't don't really remember uh big things like that we, we would do things that were just you know silly things like jetpack mode uh, yes. Which were more like de- debugging things. We okay. could fly around, fly around the level, um, and sometimes the designers would implement little little things like that, just as part of their own level. But not not really big gameplay uh, physics type things that I remember uh, that were were left on the the drawing room floor. The drawing room floor. So One thing no I remember little- didn't make hidden secret
0: exploit in the code somewhere that somebody might be like oh my gosh this will open up this whole new mechanic or something
1: well one thing that wasn't really a mechanic was in the first game uh we did the animations for a for a a nutter where you ball on a rail and one leg goes one way and one leg goes the other way (laughs) but the animation didn't really work very well and it kept clipping through the rail and it it looked kind of silly and so I, i decided we shouldn't have it in uh, but I think uh, when uh, they did other versions of the game, like the Dreamcast maybe uh, or something, they found the animation and they put it back in the game and people liked it even though it didn't didn't look right. So I and now I now I regret not having it in the first version of the game because you know who cares if the animation doesn't look right? It's 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 a funny bale.
0: There you go. All right, modders, let's see the nutter in. Uh, let's add, let's see that added to uh, to the Underground Pro yeah. mod. So. <laughs> so
1: I think the animation is still actually in on the disc. We just didn't. Uh, we didn't use it.
0: Interesting. Okay, that's the kind of stuff that we eat up. We love to hear that kind of stuff. All right. So this comes full circle then. So um, you decided to retire from NeverSoft in '03. Can you share with us what led to, to uh, you to this decision that it was time to be to move on?
1: I just, you know, like I just felt like moving on. Really, I, I felt I've been doing the same thing for a while. Uh, I you know, made a reasonable amount of money doing it. And I wanted to do something by myself, I think was that the key thing like I, I wanted, I didn't, you know, it's not that I didn't like uh, being part of the team, I enjoyed my time at Neversoft, but I wanted to try just you know, doing something that, that, uh, um, that I enjoyed doing. Turns out uh, having a framework of people around you and, and strict deadlines is a really good motivator for actually doing things and I <laughs> didn't actually do very much in the game sphere afterwards I did a little bit of consulting and writing and now you have know, transitioned to be more of a writer mm-hmm. uh but, you know, I had kind of dreams of of doing like AI development uh, startups and things like that wow. I left but never got round to it <laughs>
0: All right, I like it. So uh, we've had we've had several NeverSoft guests on the podcast. Each one's shared a fun story from their time at NeverSoft. Do you have a story that you could think of that you from your time there that might be fun to share for 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 the audience?
1: Well, uh, Dan Beanfelt, uh was a, a fun guy, tall guy. When I hired him, I didn't know how old he was, uh, and he he did, he aced all the programming tests. And, uh, then one day I discovered he was only 15 years old. Oh, wow. But he was still the guy who did best on the programming tests. And so <laughs> we still hired him. <laughs> wow. Uh, uh, I think by the time he got here, he was like 16, but, uh, yeah, he, uh, he, he was a fun guy and he once, uh, he was a big kind of big, burly, tall gangly guy. He challenged us to put him in a cardboard box and tie him up and he would burst out of it. Like an escape artist, so we we did this. We tied him up with a bunch of uh, like uh, network cables, serial cables that we had, (laughs) and he broke out of it. And two days later, our new dev systems uh, arrived from Australia. Don't know why they've been in Australia. Some Australian developer, like for the PS2, I think. And we plugged them in, and they started smoking. (laughs) Uh, So like thousands of dollars of dev dev kit went up in smoke and oh uh, no so we thought, what the heck is wrong with this and so we put we <laughs> one out and we plugged another one in that one starts smoking too and wow. then I I, I, t- I looked down and I said oh this is the cable that we'd use to tie Dan up in the, in the box <laughs> and maybe there's something wrong with it so I believe I plugged it into a third dev kit and that started smoking too and that's when I realized there was something wrong with the cable and Dan had actually uh Uh, Ripped it long ways. So all the wires are mangled inside and it's short-circuited And so whenever you plug it into these these dev kits they didn't have any uh, circuit protection and they just fried the circuits
0: Oh my goodness Um. (laughs) Wow (laughs)
1: it's <laughs> Just crazy shenanigans <laughs> le- leading to loss of equipment.
0: Yeah, well, there's definitely been some good stories some sh- cr- crazy shenanigans that we've had, had shared that uh, contributes adds to the list for sure. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's crazy. That was the most expensive one. Oh my goodness. Except perhaps for Joel's Joel's um, ACL tear. When I think who? Somebody that was Dan too, as well. Actually, Dan tackled Joel. Uh, at a, a pool party i think and uh tory's acl and joel was in uh on crutches for the oh next my goodness.
0: <laughs> next oh. three months
1: so dan beanfeld's got a lot to answer for
0: there you go man it sounds like he'd be a great guest to have on too that's hilarious <laughs> uh mick i lost you on on video again but um no, i know so we're, we're running out of time again. here if you don't feel like restarting we can just do voice for the rest of the
1: time Sure, yeah. Let's okay. go as long as we can without it crashing. But, yeah, well, okay. <laughs> <off us.
0: laughs> oh, perfect. All right, well, Um. so, uh, final question on, on Neversoft and so forth. Do you still keep
1: in touch with any former team members from Neversoft? you still friends with some of those folks? Sure, yeah. Just... Uh, yeah. You know, on Facebook, we, we contact and we meet up occasionally. Like uh, I've met people like over over the years, from time to time. But we've we've moved apart. Like I'm in Northern California now. They're mostly still in in the LA area, so I don't don't get to see them that much. But we're still friends. <laughs> That's great. <clears throat> okay um
0: so real quick just a quick summary what how what's your opinion on how the series went after you left even through the robomoto days and then leading up into now we see one plus two uh the remaster come out here last year from vicarious visions how do you feel uh, overall this series has been handled you know since since your departure
1: well, I, I think it, it was kind of a struggle to innovate because you, to keep up interest in a game you could have something new. Uh, if you've got a football game, you can have like you know the, the new teams and everything. but it, it was kind of hard I think to add new gameplay elements uh, and so it kind of stagnated to a degree because you know people were perhaps either trying too hard or not innovating enough uh, in terms of, of the gameplay. And people I think just you know the mainstream, got a little bit bored of the game because it was was the same game essentially Mm -hmm. uh but uh, and then there was some you know things like tony hawk ride didn't didn't really work uh uh but the one plus two game it's great it's it's back to the back to the roots and back to the original gameplay and it's all the original levels and uh i think it's i haven't actually played it but i've talked to people who have played it and uh i have seen the gameplay and it, it looks like a very good uh um modern version of the original games. Yeah, it definitely
0: it definitely nails the feel that we've talked about throughout this podcast. Uh, yeah. It really it it recaptures that feel. The gameplay is just really, really solid and strong. So um, it's great. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of the uh, this will be my final question, and then I'm going to roll it over to kind of what you're doing in the in the newer space. and what, So have you have you seen or heard or uh, do you know anything about what's called the Thug Pro mod? It's a mod that a team of people have done on yeah. the Underground 2 engine. Have you heard about that at all?
1: I've heard about it. I've not I've not played it, but it's great. I mean, I love the idea that people are so passionate about the game that they will take the time to do that and you know, give it a platform for the continuation of uh, you know, online play into the future. It's great.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's really been great. It's uh, really cool. The team is great. Shout out to to Morton and Quaz and Gon. They've done a great job with it and uh, it's really extended the life of the series. It's kept people playing yeah. it and it's just kind of the best of everything all rolled into one mod and kind of the Neversoft title. So it's just a really yeah. cool thing. That's cool. Okay, well, let's just talk real quick, and then we'll let you go, Mick. I really appreciate your time here. Um, so for for you, you currently, uh, you're well-known uh, and re- well-respected figure within the conspiracy theory debunking community. Uh, mm. Can you just go into that just briefly? What does that look like? What does that entail?
1: Well, I think uh, it's just the type of thing I've been interested in for a long time, and it, uh, in a way, uses the talents that I, I learned developing games at Neversoft, like debugging code is a lot like debunking conspiracy theories because you've got to figure stuff out. And sure. sometimes there's stuff to do with like 3D graphics and whatnot, uh, which is, is is very relevant, like figuring out UFO photos. It's just an interest I've had that I've just kind of fallen into doing more and more. And I think it's going kind to of increasingly important to debunk false conspiracy theories because they can cause problems like storming the capital and things like that. Uh, so it's it's been just... Um, an interest of mine for the last uh, few years.
0: Yeah, it's great. I've I've uh, I've talked with you probably unbeknownst to you that it was even uh, myself, but uh, I've had mm. a couple of chats with you on Twitter and you've referenced some things for me. So I've appreciated appreciated your work here. So we'll bring it right back. One final question, and then uh, and then we'll let you go. But uh, if we tie that back in conspiracy theories into Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, given your stance on this, we have levels like Roswell. And we mm. have heavy imagery in Thug 2 for the pro skater and triangle levels. <laughs> what are your opinions of that based on some of the stuff that you're working conspiracy theories? Does it just go back to the fact that this is a video game?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's popular culture. You know, Things like uh, Roswell Area 51 are like tropes in popular culture and aliens. And so you get them in, in video games. So it's just a fun thing uh it obviously doesn't mean that tony hawk is uh, an agent of the illuminati or anything like that it's just uh, <laughs> it's just a, a fun little thing to do yeah That's what I I would
0: say as well. I would concur. Well, Mick, at this point in the podcast is where we'd like to give you an opportunity to to you as we wind down with you. Is there anything that you'd like to share? Any shout outs that you'd like to give? Maybe you'd like to talk a little bit about a couple of your websites or if you have uh, any writings coming out, your podcast, anything that you'd like to say at this point. Floor is yours. Uh, Please uh, feel free to speak out whatever you'd like to.
1: Well, I'd really recommend that people watch, uh, Ralph D'Amato's documentary, uh, pretending I'm a Superman yes. because that's, it's a wonderful, I'm sure anyone who's a real Tony Hawk fan is going to watch it, but I mean, if you haven't, I would encourage you to do it. I mean, I really enjoyed being part of making it and also just watching it because there's lots of memories there. I just want to tell people like, you know, it's a good documentary to watch. Um, and then, yeah, with my stuff, I don't really do any Tony Hawk stuff other than, like, interviews like this anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but if you want to follow me uh, in my conspiracy stuff, you can, I'm on Twitter, at Mick West. And uh, that's probably the quickest way of getting into anything I do. And I have a YouTube channel, Mick West, youtube.com slash Mick West. And uh, I, I do my, my debunking on that.
0: Beautiful. Yeah, check it out, everybody. Um, I I'm, I follow twit. I follow uh, Mick on Twitter, and he's got a lot of great stuff that he posts, and uh, it's it's fascinating. Occasionally, he posts a Tony Hawk thing or two. It's not yeah. too often, but on yeah. occasion. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's mostly been recently to do with the uh, the pretending I'm a Superman stuff. Yeah. Uh, and but, yeah,
0: I would echo that sentiment in a huge way. Um, we've had Ralph on, we've had Lu- Ludwig on mm-hmm. the director, yeah. and uh, they are great. They've, documentary is fantastic if for whatever reason you haven't checked it out i concur with mick it's uh it was just that i think the london game or the london there was a film festival in london here this last mm. week um and they did a live stream ralph and uh ludwig did and yeah. uh, great stuff it's fantastic yeah all right well mick thank you so much i really appreciate your time uh this was an honor, truly. Um, if we had a list of guests that we wanted to get on this podcast when we first decided to do it and you were right at the top of the list. And so, man, not knowing me, not knowing really anything about this podcast. Thanks for taking a chance on us and giving us your time. We really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, well, it was fun.
0: All right, Mick. Well, yep. Uh, we appreciate your time again and uh, you take care. And, uh, yep, everybody check out Mick's stuff. All right.
1: Thanks All right, a lot. Thanks, you mate. have a good day. All right. Bye. You too.
0: Uh, So, a couple of things as as we wind down. So, everybody should know, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 Plus 2 was released for a PS5 and Xbox XS and S, I should say, create new enhanced features, 120 FPS, achievements, haptic feedback, spatial audio, all of the stuff and things, all the bells and whistles. So if you have uh, one of those next-gen consoles, make sure and grab a copy or upgrade. Uh, In some cases, you can upgrade for free. In some cases, it's like 10 bucks. but cross-progression, good stuff. So Switch is coming. Uh, We don't have a release date on Switch yet couple other things we have the i5 improv tournament happening from our friends at the line tub round three today 4 p.m pacific time The Elite Eight, competing in the old school round, uh, Tony Hawk 4 levels. Uh, Stop on over, twitch.tv slash the line tub. Give them your support. Uh, It's great. It's been a lot of fun watching and and, uh, being a part of I-5 there. Um, So make sure and do that. And then finally, Andy, THPS, as we all know him, uh, he has his second community tournament it's going to be kicking off Saturday, April 17th at noon Pacific. It is two versus two graffiti. Cash prizes on the line. Stop by his Machurino tournament page for more info. So lots of ways and opportunities to get involved, compete, play the series, be a part. Um, so make sure and do all those things. All right. With that great time with Mick I wish we would have had I probably Freddie and I had probably we could have covered another hour easily with questions so at any rate um, with that we appreciate it we are going to introduce our next guest Freddie will be back for this next guest bummed he wasn't here Miss you, Freddie shout out to Freddie my co host he's awesome. So next guest, who's coming up? What's going on? What's happening? We have coming up on Friday, Friday, April 16th at 9 p.m. Eastern. We're going to be welcoming to the podcast for episode number 47, Bungle. Bungle is well-known within the old-school Tony Hawk's Pro Skater community for his ability and creativity. He created dozens of unique, interesting, and just flat fun creative parks for Tony Hawk's 4 all the way through American Wasteland. Bungle was a member of the TXO clan. Shout-out to TXO. I got the shirt on right now. And then later was one of the leaders of the car clan. Bungle helped maintain and contribute to the TXO hosted site, Creator Review, which he would continue to host, administer, and support when the primary TXO site closed its doors. He created and facilitated multiple contests and was a strong influence in the community for many years. we we'll look forward to some great stories from Bungle and perhaps even dig out a few of his creations to play on the broadcast. As always, we'll be live on Twitch Friday, April 16th, right at 9 p.m. Eastern, this one's special to me. It's going to be great. Um, Bungle is, I consider him a friend. Uh, he and I had the opportunity to go down and visit the Neversaw headquarters for Tony Hawk's Proving Ground for an event down there. Um, he's, he's just awesome. He's a lot of fun. He, he's one of the only people in the community that is older than me. and that's hard to do there's there's few few people that are older than me in this community but uh, bungle is one of them and i'm sure i'll give him a rib about that but we're gonna have some great stories we're gonna have a a, a great time with bungle and if you've never met him or you don't know anything about him a lot of old school people will remember him he hasn't been around the community for a, a number of years um he has tried to get involved with thug pro a little bit um but not so much. But uh, he's got some great, great stories and tales, and so I would encourage everybody to come and check it out and uh, give some support. All right, folks, we are going to wind it down, and um, thank you all. Thank you for your support. Thank you for being a part. Uh, we really appreciate it. And um, yeah, thanks again to McQuest. Shout out to Freddie, Mr. Man, and everybody. Take care. And we will catch you on the next one. Bye.